So after a week's delay of getting lost in a talk on Sila, we're back steady on the course of the foundations of mindfulness, well into our 20-some talk, 20th, 22nd talk, I think, on this subject. And as far as I can see in the future, <laughs> we're going to be talking about this subject. So we should relax with it. We're not trying to get over the subject onto something more important. <clears throat> it feels to me like whatever we talk about has its own importance. And so we can uh, dislodge the importance within this particular topic, no matter where this topic might lead us. And uh, I thought, uh, as I was just looking over this sutta yet again, that what, what the Buddha uh, had in mind uh, in the different ways he approached to this subject of mindfulness and where mindfulness can land and firm itself is that he was really interested in, um, in initiating a very unsettling exploration of what we have taken the world to be. And why do I use the word unsettling? Because it is. Uh, when we start looking at where the mind is placed within these foundations of mindfulness, <clears throat> and we start exploring in alignment with the directions as they are encouraging us to do, we see that what we have taken the world to be simply isn't the truth what we think the world is, is not the way it is, not the way it is. Now, we've placed an awful lot of chips on this being a certain way. And we are loath to think of it as being uh, misrepresented, as the way we have perceived it to be misrepresented. And so we're hesitant, at best, to explore the depth and reach of where the Buddha seems to be taking us. <clears throat> and that's why I believe that there are very many, many different levels on which we can rest as we begin this exploration. Some of us just want an application for mindfulness. So if we just want that, if we just want the soft and warm caress of a mindful attention, we can place that attention upon our body without too much disruption. Wherever we place awareness, there's going to be some disruption. Because when we place awareness upon anything, it's going to show us, it's going to show us something that we haven't, that has been unconscious up until that point. And so, but we can get by without too much irritation as long as we stay within kind of a gross representation of where this sutta is going. When we start going into the more subtle areas, then it gets profoundly unsettling. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to cast it tonight as profoundly unsettling, right? And then you can work with it in whatever level you like. If you like it less, more settled, do so. If you find yourself working in a particular way that feels very useful to you uh, and productive, uh, then work, continue to work in that way. <clears throat> but I like, to f I like to throw the, uh, the, the teaching as, uh, as far as my understanding will take it and then see what, what comes from there. Now, um, I would just like to make a distinction between a wisdom approach to this sutta and a samadhi approach. I brought that subject up last week, and I think I'm going to be expounding a little more on it as we go uh, into this year, because uh, this tradition uh, is really a more emphasis on a samadhi tradition. That is a very strong, focused, uh, 
and almost laser-like beam of attention. And uh, that, it's, it's as if you just discovered a microscope or a telescope, and you see the world from that perspective of 600 power or 1,000 power, and you go, God, I've, this, the way I've been looking at the world is completely wrong. Paper isn't paper. It's all these threads that have these kind of jagged, wood-like uh, uh, fibers. And you can get enamored by turning the power of that scope up more and more and seeing at each level of power and a new environment of what you had thought the world to be when, from an ordinary point of view, looks very different. However, if you take that that you're looking at that's in a frame and you look at it with more minuscule attention, you'll still be within the frame of that picture, won't you? And so you'll come out of that powered observation and you'll still claim reference to the frame. Oh, I see what I am now. I see what the body is. I understand it to be different when I look at it from that level of attention. It's fascinating and extraordinary at that subtlety. I see sensations and energy systems like I never knew them before. I now understand the body differently. See, the same frame of reference, the body, is still there and me seeing it. Now that's very different than a wisdom approach, which looks at the frame of how we are holding the very conceptual frame of reference of the body itself. And so the way I'm approaching this sutta is not from a samadhi reference, and though you're welcome to pursue that one if you wish, but from removing the frame itself. Why is it, how is it that we even take this thing to be a body. And what is it that we claim as defined as a body? And those are the questions that will create the unsettledness within our practice. Samadhi doesn't actually create that much unsettledness. Because like you would at a microscope, you say you can go there, you can see it, and then you can leave it, and you can continue your life pretty much the way it has been. But when you ask the questions from which the thing is based, on which the assumptions are based, then there can be a feeling of ill at easement uh, when this happens. And so this first foundation, I'm just going to go through uh, the two foundations we've explored and then move into the third one tonight with this, with this, um, from this uh, wisdom approach. The question that the first foundation asked is, what is the body and how is it created? That's the wisdom approach to this first foundation. What is the body? And in fact, there is a refrain that uh, this particular interpreter or translator of the text uses in which he uh, talks about um, uh, there is a body that there is a body is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance. And I like that. I, some translations don't include that refrain. But I like it because what it does is says that the fact that we call this thing a body depends upon our knowledge base and our remembrance of what we have called it in the past to call it that yet again. Oh, this is my body, I say to myself. Oh, this is what this is. And so that's why we call it that, because we have a remembrance of what we have called it before and a knowledge based on, on why this body and the life I've lived within this body and the details of it being such. So when we start questioning that, when we start releasing the conceptual need to place everything within a fix, fixed response, within a fixture, within a frame of reference, well, then what is the body when we don't call it a body? 
what is the body when we no longer hold it to the boundaries that we have always held it to, which means, you know, the external skin separates the internal body from the external environment. But if that sense of skin is just a sensation, like all sensations, why is it a boundary to something? Unless I can, the way I have aligned my perception makes it into a boundary. And so the, the question of what a body is or isn't starts to be explored from this frame of reference. Now there's another refrain that goes on in here and it says uh, through each of these foundations it says in this way he remains focused he or she remains focused internally on the body in and of itself or feelings in and of itself or mind in and of itself or to externally on the body in and of itself or both internally and externally on the body in and of itself. Now what, what is this internally focused or externally focused or both internally and externally focused? What, what is the Buddha trying to get at when he's talking about that? <clears throat> well, internal focus is pretty clear, I would think, that when we keep our attention on what's inside the skin, we get a sense of a very different relationship to the body, of movement, of sensation, of energy, of breath, heat, cold, uh, lots of different energetic movement within this skin internal reference point. And what we had thought was so solid and so clearly uh, um, a solid or a liquid really turns out to be, when we see it, a lot of space, a lot of space. And just to have and to awaken that inward life of the body and to be able to hold our attention within it really creates a, a very beautiful synchronicity with the body and the resting repose of the consciousness uh, that just settles into the body. And once it has learned to get over some of the uh, uh, doubt it has in resting with the body or some of the history, emotional history that is contained within the body, once it has learned to adapt and to work with that, it can rest very settled with a great degree of settledness, settledness in the body. But the Buddha doesn't stop there. He says, in this way, he remains focused internally on the body in and of itself and externally on the body in and of itself. So what is this externally on the body? Well, just in the course of movement throughout the day, we interact with a lot of different other things. And to have this reference of being inside the body as we come into the context of other things, this greater context, of communication and interaction and just observation is equally as important as keeping our attention internally. You can't keep your intention internally and have the context or know the context out of how the body needs to move in any particular situation unless we also have a way of acknowledging presence or awareness externally as well, just in navigating through the world, the world so that you walk out of a door. So that's internally and externally, but what about both internally and externally on the body in and of itself? Well, you may be very aware of the people in the room externally, and you may be very aware of the internal response that you have to those people in the room. When the door opens and your mother comes in, there's going to be a very different internal response to that person when they, we see her than with a neutral person coming in. And so that awareness of both the internal and the external simultaneously is a beautiful bridge that allows the whole thing to come in under awareness. Also, 
I believe what he was pointing to in this exploration is the boundary that seems to separate the internal from the external. So it, when we begin to realize, as we did, and will to a greater extent when we take up this third foundation, in the second foundation we begin to realize that much of what we take the world to be is a projection from our internal world. And if much of what we take the world to be is a projection from an internal uh, discord we're having with ourselves, dialogue we're having, then where does the internal world stop and the external begin? If I am creating the external from the internal, then where is the boundary line between those two? This is a question. This is an, an intention to explore. Now, if that feels very unsafe and unsettling to you to explore in that direction, then you can just remain with the sensations internally and work it so that you feel as if you're in here and the world is outside of you. But at some point, there will be a longing to get over even that form of, of division within yourself. And when that naturally arises with you, not artificially induced, but through natural curiosity arise, saying, I wonder why I feel like I'm in here and, and everything is out there. Why, why is that? Why do I take myself to be in here? What, what claim, what claim, landmark, do I say, oh yes, this is me in here and everything else is out there? What, what, what presents that conclusion? And then there'll be this whole exploration of, of the permeability of that boundary, which is a lot of fun when it's asked in a timely manner. When it's imposed upon you as something you feel like you should do, you first of all, you won't do it, and secondly, you'll scare yourself. And it will feel uh, anything but a call towards an adventure. So this first foundation really asks the question, what is the body and how is it created? Now the second foundation, we've gone through the first foundation, we've gone through the second one. The second foundation asks, an even more uh, confusing question. <clears throat> it says, as I explore feelings, how is the past formed within the present? That's the question that exploration of feeling will eventually uh, dislodge in us. How is it that the present, which is so obvious to our logic and to our, even to our meditation experience, so obviously not in the present, the past is not in the present, it's carried by our momentum of thinking into the present, but why, why does it seem so real? Why does it have such an impact on us. That even though we know that logically and in some ways intuitively, still we carry inevitably this sense of past reference to everything. All my reactivity, all of my fear, all of my desire. Where is that coming from? And so the exploration of this second foundation of mindfulness is the exploration of the past of how we carry, maintain, and continue to identify the past in the present. You see, the, you see that? You, you can also see the potentiality of real freedom here. Because if we could uncloud the present with the past so that it would be just clearly seen, clearly understood that the present is and the past was and we keep bringing the was to the is and we don't con and we confuse the two and acting from the was rather than the is 
is confoundingly confusing, that if we could just get those two things straight in awareness, then our lives would be simplified immensely by that. You see, you feel that? So this exploration of the second foundation is tremendously important in terms of, of, of eliminating that extra baggage of the past. Now, when we were talking about it, we talked about it in terms of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. But those are lightning rods. Those are, you know, when I, when I was a, a child, we'd put a supersaturated sweet, I would supersaturate a fluid with, uh, you heat up water and you put a lot of sugar in it. And it uh, then absorbs more sugar than a cool liquid does. And then you put a piece of string in that supersaturated solution and you let it cool naturally. and crystals of sugar called rock candy start forming around the string. Now what does that have to do with what I was talking about? I've got to get myself back to where the analogy led to. But as if you put a, when you have a feeling in a supersaturated solution, when you have a feeling, then all of a sudden from this, what I mean by supersaturated is that we are, we have enormous momentum from our past, from all of the years of our history to coalesce around this feeling with a description and an event and a dialogue and a story and a conclusion and a fixation that as soon as a feeling shows itself in the present, a feeling is in the present. A feeling is a feeling. It's not, it has nothing to do with the past whatsoever. But because of this, this gang-busting, energetic arousal of, from the past around every particular feeling and the perceptual uh, lodging of what that object is and the history I have with it, suddenly this thing becomes what becomes what we have made it to be because of our past memories about it. And it all comes from that single string of feeling. Get it? So that was a successful analogy, right? You can give me credit for that. <laughs> so how does the past recreate itself in the present? That should be an interesting question to you. I hope this doesn't sound too intellectual or, I mean, a, the, these first couple of talks in this third foundation feel a little technical to me, but it should be interesting. It, I hope it's not boring. It's like, oh God, let's get to the real stuff. But let it encourage a natural inquiry in you, not a forced inquiry. Like, that's interesting. Like, just take it where you, okay, how does the past create itself in the present? That, that's an interesting question to somebody who wants to abide in the present. That should be an interesting question because we keep stepping back from the present to bring the past into it. Now, why do we do that? I want to know from my own experience how I do that. The Buddha uses feelings, but you don't have to. You can use anything. A, an easily accessible point that you can enter for the layperson is emotions, your emotional states. Your emotional states have exactly the same thread as the feelings do. Remembering that the Buddha, I mean, he was a monk. He had this laser beam attention that I mentioned in the samadhi approach. So he could be both a samadhi walla and also a wisdom walla. Well, most of us don't have the strength of mind to be both. And so we don't have to go into the subtlety and nuances in order for us to be wise. Wisdom we can take from a more, okay, so let's, let's look at how the, the, the emotion, when I stand upon an emotion and emotional reference, what the emotion does to the present moment is all of a sudden I'm not seeing the present as the present, I'm seeing the present through this particular state of mind, and that particular state of mind is like looking through historical binoculars 
at the present. And we'll get to that as we start moving into this third foundation called uh, mindfulness of the mind. So I want to actually read uh, the opening parts of this sutta. Just stay with me here. You know, I, I do this and because we're, we're talking about the sutta, but stay attentive here. Now when we move into this third foundation, mindfulness of the mind, the question that is unsettling that I'm going to be addressing is what is mind and how does it create me and the world outside of me? So that's just in the same way as the body, what is the body and how does it create it? And feelings, how does the past represent itself in the present? And the foundation of mind is what is, the, what is mind? What is mind, and how does it create me and the world from, from itself? Okay, so that's, that's what we're going to be exploring uh, in these weeks when we're operating under, uh, on this foundation. But I want to just read uh, what the sutta says, because it's very interesting, uh, <laughs> although somewhat dry and repetitious, but let me just read it. And how does a monk, and when you hear monk, put none if you're a woman, so there's no uh, gender bias here. How does a monk remain focused in the mind in and of itself? There is a case where a monk, when, a monk, when the mind has passion, discerns that the mind has passion. When the mind is without passion, he discerns that the mind is without passion. When the mind has aversion, he discerns that the mind has aversion. When the mind is without version, he discerns that the mind is without version. When the mind has delusion, he discerns that the mind has delusion. When the mind is without delusion, he discerns that the mind is without delusion. When the mind is constricted, he discerns that the mind is constricted. When the mind is scattered, he discerns that the mind is scattered. When the mind is enlarged, I would take that to be arrogant. He discerns that the mind is enlarged. When the mind is not enlarged, meaning not arrogant, he, alert, he learns that. When the mind is surpassed, he discerns that the mind is surpassed. When the mind is unsurpassed, this is the exalted states of mind. Like this is unsurpassed. This emotion is exalted emotion, right? Not the drudgery, not the surpassed emotions, which I think by just we mean by the drudgery of ordinariness. When the mind is concentrated, he discerns that. When the mind is not concentrated, he discerns that. When the mind is released, he discerns that. When the mind is not released, he discerns that. In this way, he remains focused internally on the mind in and of itself or externally on the mind in and of itself or both internally and externally on the mind in and of itself or he remains focused on the phenomena of origination with regard to the mind, on the phenomena of passing away with regard to the mind, or the phenomena of origination and passing away with regard to the mind, or his mindfulness that there is a mind is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance and remains independently, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a monk remains focused on the mind in and of itself. Now, uh, when I read that, which I just did, something very interesting comes up. And hopefully, if you followed it with some interest, it came up in you too. And that is, when the mind is concentrated, you notice that. And when the mind is unconcentrated, you know, know that. He does not say, get the mind concentrated. If it's unconcentrated, weigh in there, spend time on your breath and get it concentrated. When he says it's, when you have disillusionment, notice that. When you have clarity, notice that. He does not say, weigh in and rearrange the mind and bring it about so that it all looks very pretty and natural to yourself. Unnecessarily, we selectively hear what he's saying. 
And because I think we like to ratchet down the extent of his teaching, what we try to do is to keep it very contained. But it seems very clear to me that he's saying, let the form be the form. Whatever the mind is doing, leave it alone. Just notice what it's doing. Don't try to reel it in and make it do something else. Don't try to counterbalance it so that now it does what you want it to do rather than what it's naturally doing. That's extraordinarily important because most of the teaching has to do with just the counterbalance of that. It has to do with what we think we need to do to get the mind in order. If it's not happy, we need to make it happy. If it's unsettled, we need to settle it. If it's disquieted, we need to calm it. And so we keep bringing in an alternative response, which weighs in and judges the condition that it's in. And that inevitably brings a divisiveness, a pro and an aversion and an attraction to those two states that are in opposition to one another. And from that, we are supposed to find wholeness and completion and freedom. It's very clear to me that the Buddha is making an extraordinarily important point for the entire range of his teaching here. He's saying that true freedom is not in the form and expression the mind is offering in this moment. Now just let that sink in. Now look at your mind in whatever state it's in as I'm speaking. Worried, uncomfortable, irritating, restless, freedom is not in the counterbalance or the influence or nudging that to be a different, to be something else. He's saying that. But we selectively hear what we want to hear given what we want from the teaching. Now we can do that and there are times when skillful means, which is the rebalancing factor, can be helpful and almost everyone will have times when it is helpful in their practice to do just that. But that is not what he's saying. Ultimately, the rebalancing is very limited in its movement or direction. And that what he's looking at is not what the form and expression that the mind is being held within in that moment or manifesting in that moment, but what is it that is, what is it that is being held within? Not the form and expression, not the appearance, but what is that appearance being held within? What holds it? Now here, you have a thousand different teachings moving out from here. But if you get a sense of where and why these different expressions and tastes of teaching often have to do with kind of a ratcheting down and making the teaching safe, rather than keeping it as unsettling as it has to be if it's about freedom, freedom by nature is very unsettling to where most of us locate our lives. Then we begin to see why people just don't hear this. They selectively don't hear this enormous uh, pointing. Let the form be. There's no preferred state for the mind. Now there's one caveat to that. One warning I'd like to usher, and that presupposes a mind that is not lost in thought. Because you aren't going to know whether your mind is concentrated or not concentrated, or discordant or accordant, if those are two <laughs> opposites, or happy or sad, if the mind is caught in the constant thought dialoguing about each of those states. You won't have the ability to objectify and see what that mind is doing at all. You'll just be lost within those, those states of mind. 
So the ability, and this is where the Buddha's teaching encourages, it has always encouraged. He said he taught three things. He taught sila, we talked about that last week. He taught samadhi, and he taught panya, or wisdom. Wisdom is what he's saying here. Samadhi is presupposed as a base for this particular level of teaching. Samadhi is just the ability to steady the attention so that you know when thoughts are arising. So that you know when you're just, you know, just thinking your way through this thing. And so much of our practice, especially early on, has to do with learning, having or obtaining a stability of consciousness so that we have that uh, skill to know when the mind is this way or when it's that. So this third foundation which we are now entering is the foundation or the mindfulness of the mind. Mindfulness of the mind. Now to study, by what, let me just define the mind because if you go to the Tibetan tradition or even to some of the Zen traditions, mind can you the original mind or the buddha's mind is really the space that holds all of the different content of mind that's what people are referring to when they talk about the original mind or the natural state of mind the mind that is not moving in relationship to each area of content but what we're talking about here is somewhat different definition we're talking about the content what it the mental formations that occur within the mind. And the mental formations are the thoughts and emotions and feelings and, and uh, movements towards or away from and also um, all the qualities of the mind that arise. Uh, there are many, many, many different calmness and tranquility. These are all conditioned attributes or formations of the mind. And your mind is different than my mind because you've encouraged certain things and discouraged other things, and so you're going to have the effects of all of that cultivation or deconditioning in you, and that's why your mind looks differently. It all works on the same principle. It all works exactly in accordance. That's why I can tell you from knowing my mind, what your mind, how your mind works. I don't know what it contains, <laughs> I'd rather not, but I know how it works. In fact, it hasn't changed from the time of the suttas because he's talking about my mind when he's talking about his own. So it's a common thread that we can follow through this thing. But so what does it mean? So what, how does this work? What, how, does the mind, how do these mental formations occur? Well, let me just give you some of the mechanics. I'm not expecting anybody to, there'll be no quiz. There's the sense door. Let's call, say the eye. There are, of course, the sense door, smelling, hearing, tasting, etc. But let's just pick the eye door. There's a sense door. Then there's an object of sight. Uh, whatever it is that we might be seeing, the experience of sight. And then the Buddha says there's a, a consciousness, an eye consciousness that arises with the object of sight. So there's the knowing of that. And then there are mental formations that color that object to, within consciousness, that distort it, favor it, or uh, uh, just bias it according to what mental formations might arise. There might be the feeling tone of pleasant, there might be an unpleasant memory, there might be a whole dialogue about X, Y, and Z. There could be a feeling of sadness that happens to be there because of something else as this arises. All of those things are like looking through the eye consciousness with all of this coloration and and moods and attitudes and all of that. And so what we take away from that moment of contact is all of the 
personalization of the m mental formations that occurred during that moment of actual sight connection. Now, I'm, because I could spend a lot of time talking about all the different mental formations, I'm really going to focus on the three that we've already been talking about to some degree, but for this talk I want to encourage it a little more, and that is the feelings, emotions, and thoughts. The Buddha was uh, clear. He said that thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, the deed manifests into habit, and habit hardens into character. And you can begin to get a sense that how this thing builds upon itself, giving it momentum from one word that we might say or think, and then as it manifests in that, and then it manifests into action, and the action hardens into a, an assumption about what we just did with some rationalization for what we just did, into an attribute, into a quality of character, and on into an established personality. And so this, the reason we are the way we are in character, in personality, is basically because of what we thought, think, and feel, and have since we were little. It's just hardened us into that particular, particular pattern. Now, so we have, if I can just, again, even though there's all this coloration in the moment of this particular contact with the eye and the object with all these mental formations, one thing is not colored, and that's the awareness. What is it that sees out of your eyes? Not what is it that you see, but what is it that sees? We see forms. That's what we see. But what is it that allows the, the, us the capability of seeing? That is not colored by the formations. And so as we get quieter in ourselves, in other words, we invest less in what is seen and all the reactivity to what we have invested in the states and forms and expressions of all this coloration, as we invest less and less into that coloration, the more we begin to know what it is that's seen. And I don't mean who, I mean what? Awareness the awareness itself. And that's the way out of this thing is by asking the right questions of the perception. I hope I'm not losing you. Okay. It's, I know I'm going, but I told you I was going to. <laughs> it's my style. And from there I want, you can, choose not to go, but just listen to where it is that this rock is being thrown. And then go the direction that, stay within that. See, if I threw it short, then all we would know is mindfulness of the body. Okay, I'll just be present to the body. And, and wonderful things happen from mindfulness of that, but we don't crack the nut. Now, if you know that the nut has a way to crack, and you choose to do that, you will from time to time look up from where you're working and say, hmm, I wonder, and all that wonder, that intention, you see, it establishes an intention to hear this. And all I want to do is establish an intention in you, and you can work with that intention in your own timing. But this establishes it. Now I can't remember where, where I was. <laughs> Um, we'll just dig in anywhere. So, in the present, there is all of these different formations that are arising around each of the sense bases, and all of the coloring, and all the formations, and all of the karmic tendencies, these karmic forces, Karmic is not something, it's just the past. It's the reactivity of the past. It's our belief system in the past. 
that comes up into the present. So we're constantly re-believing what we have believed from the past in the present. That's why everything seems so real and true, is because we believe in it. We believe that. That is what it is. And so we bring those belief systems to bear upon the present moment through these what I call karmic forces. They're also called sanskaras. And then we start proliferating our thoughts around these karmic forces, and we think about all the ways that you know, we could handle them in the future, and, and then we lose a complete reference to the present moment entirely because we have no basis to rest on the present, which is awareness, because we're losing ourselves in the formations that are in the present. Rather than the awareness that's in the present, seeing the formations, we're losing ourselves, embedding ourselves within the formations and then losing the present awareness. You see that? Okay. That was a lot. So after, as this gets going, an, an attitude will start to arise or a belief will come and suddenly from a feeling tone in the present with, with past uh, attitudes associated with similar situations will say, I can't accept this. I can't accept this moment. What we really can't accept is the feeling tone in the moment, the unpleasantness. But we cast it out as if it were a depiction of the actual event itself. I can't tolerate this. And then as soon as we've made that assertion and belief that this moment is not justifiable, then we'll have the accompanying emotions that come up that prove that it's unjustifiable. Like dislike, hatred, antagonism, frustration, irritation, annoyance, impatience. That proves that this moment is untenable. Now, we have rested upon the proof of our mind to prove the moment as being unjustifiably, uh, I cannot accommodate this. I can, this is not, I can't, this is intolerable. So what's the way out of that? Well, we don't have to go back and link by link, you simply cast your attention on the awareness of what the moment contains without trying to have it contain something else. Slowly, the investment in what the state of mind tells you about the moment becomes less important than the awareness that holds the moment itself. Slowly. I may be talking years, years into somebody's practice. But we can always move it in that direction. If you just, from time to time, in those irritating moments, and I throw this challenge out to you often, from time to time, just say, all right, I'm not moving. I know what the mind is doing. It's telling me I'm <coughs> irritated, annoyed, and I should be really upset. And if I look at what I am in this moment, really, what's happening is something very unpleasant is occurring. Now let me just feel the unpleasantness. Instead of it building upon my sense of control and my power needs and my attributes of being put down and negated as a person and all the psychological confrontation, which is so many layers beyond just the simplicity of it being unpleasant. Built years and years and years of struggle, you can see this thing unfolding. It's simply unpleasant. Now, some of that holds such belief, such solidification of belief. You don't understand how my mother did this and how I... We, have, we keep bringing it in, so we've got to dispel it. We can't just pretend like we are free of it. And so therapy and all of that is very helpful because it dispels something, it dispels an illusion. 
Do you see that this is such an illusion? It has nothing, nothing to do with this moment whatsoever. It's just, if you say to yourself from day one, I hate myself, I hate myself, and say it several times a day, and then 40 years later, you wake up out of bed, I love myself, not likely. <laughs> what is it that we're dispelling? We're dispelling a conditioned tendency. That's all. But I have to go to therapy and I have to work it all out. Well, you can do that if you feel like you need to. But if you can see through this thing quickly, it can be done quickly and simply. Most people can't. Very few. So don't, let's not pretend, because we don't want to do the hard work of having to go back into those memories and actually <coughs> dislodge them. I just want to get over it, so it's unpleasant. <coughs> no. So most people, if not all, very, very few, and I don't know anyone, so that, that okay? So I don't know anyone. I'm just saying that there's somebody out there because I don't know the whole population. But most of us have to do the hard work of exploring to get to what? To get so that we no longer have the condition tendency to say, I don't like myself. And we pair that with all the incidences and experiences that happened all along my childhood in which other people told me I wasn't likable. <laughs> See how simple this is? Notice when you are unlikable, notice when you're likable. Notice when you're this, you notice when you're that. Don't try to extrapolate anything from it. Don't try to propound or make it more than what it is. Don't elaborate on it. Just it's this now and it's this way then. That's all. And awareness then gets, comes out. As long as I'm in struggle mode with this versus that, I like, oh, I need to be likable, I hate myself, then all that's going to matter are the appearances, not what holds those appearances. And the mind will have us forever as long as we are struggle mode with it. That's what the Buddha is saying. But there's a key. There's a way. And we'll explore that in the next lecture. <laughs> Can we sit for a minute or two? Now, as you sit, just for this minute, don't weigh in on yourself. Whatever is there is fine. If it's really fine, that's called pure witnessing. That's just acknowledging. No judgment, positive or negative. It's just that. It's just a flashlight seeing. That's pure witnessing. And it doesn't come from the chatter and storyline of judgment. Okay. So I ran over as I'm prone to do, but I want to spend a little bit of time answering questions if you have any. We haven't had a lot of... One, to, I'm, one of these sessions, I'm just going to have a question and answer period so that people can get out all the questions they want. So unless you are on a bus or a ferry, I ask that you stay and remain for the duration of these times together. Yes, in the back there. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. What is Okay, in the technical Buddhist sense, in the vernacular, feelings and emotions are the same. We just use one as a, as a simile for the other. In 
it's very specific in Buddhist terminology that a feeling is a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral tone that is not emotionally based. Emotions have a feeling. A pleasant emotion would be happiness or well-being. An unpleasant emotion is, would be impatience or irritability. But a feeling doesn't have an emotion. A feeling is associated with every experience we have. Every experience has a, has a sense, if you experience it, of whether it is pleasant or unpleasant or neither unpleasant nor pleasant. And I just spent a good 10 to 15 weeks talking about this subject. So if it's confusing to you, please go back to the second foundation in the, on the um, internet on our website and listen to some of those talks so that you can get this. Because I'm building now upon what we have learned. And uh, it really does require that we know uh, those slight nuances of definition. They're not considerable. I haven't given you a lot of definitions. But this is one that does require uh, some, uh, some knowledge base. So feelings are not emotions. Emotions are not feelings. Emotions can contain feelings, but feelings can't contain emotions. That should make perfect sense to you. Does it? OK. Yes? Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that question. I was going to spend some time on it, but I got lost in other things. In the sutta, it says, um, if I can just bring it up here, uh, it says towards the end of the sutta, it says, uh, or he remains focused on the phenomenon of origination with regard to the mind, or the phenomenon of passing away with regard to the mind, or the phenomenon of origination and passing away with regard to the mind. So he's giving us another way to perceive uh, the mind, rather than seeing it as something, as being trustworthy or not trustworthy or organized or disorganized. He's looking at it from a sense of change, of transition, of flux. It's arising, it's passing away. It would be worthwhile for you and I'm, you being all of us, to spend a little time practicing, not looking at the specifics, but just noticing the element of change in your practice. Just as you're sitting, not noticing what is changing in particular even, but that there is constant flux and movement. This dislodges the ego's need to fixate and hold and fasten and couple everything together. When we live sufficiently within this uh, transition, uh, this constant state of impermanence, there the ego loses its need to fixate. It doesn't believe in fixation. It doesn't believe, because it's lived so much in impermanence, that it doesn't believe in its own fixation. It doesn't believe in what it fixes. When it says this, it also holds the possibility that that's only a transitory state. And most of us don't have that awareness. We don't, we, when we fix something, we really believe it's fixed. We think that's it and that's where it will always be, see? So it's very helpful to flush, flush out that particular perception of objects, which is what he's doing in that. Yes. Yes. Okay, it's another very good question. Thank you for that question. When, when there's a repetition of memory, often circular thinking, is what is the same theme comes around again and again, and uh, we're just noticing it. 
first of all, it doesn't seem to end. <laughs> it does eventually, but it can go on a long, long time. And it will resume itself in another time, given a different situation, like conditions, and the same pattern of circular thinking will happen. What, is, what we have to realize is that thoughts, the, the reason that thoughts are where we are going in those situations is because the thoughts are trying to justify the emotion that we're not willing to see. The emotion may be a very discordant emotion, may be a very unpleasant emotion, and the thoughts are trying to usually blame or provide some context for why this organism called me has to feel uh, anger or whatever I'm feeling. And so the thoughts go round and round trying to explain, rationalize the feeling because we're not willing to actually go to the feeling and feel it. If you're willing to go to the hub of the wheel where the wheel is spinning, the hub is in itself moving, right? And you can stay very quiet and steady within that emotion and the wheel will start because it, now the emotion is being realized and understood, the wheel will start slowing down on its own. What it means to stay quiet and still at that center of the emotion is that you now have to own what the assumptions are on which that emotion is based. The assumptions are what gave it the volatility. And those assumptions are often cast into very deep psychological self-issues that each of us have, root issues in ourselves. I'm unworthy, I'm fear of abandonment, loss, all of those different things. And so the reason we don't go to that emotion is that we don't want to face the belief system that's formed our life. So we keep the thoughts going so that we can escape from the center of the wheel to the outward periphery and never have to deal with those more difficult issues. But if we want to stop the wheel, we go to the hub and work with that pattern. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Okay, I got, the, I got the question. So give me the parmi you'd like to have. Well, let's just say uh, compassion. Okay, we'll say love. Yeah. Okay, okay. So her question is, uh, has to do with sustaining the paramis and uh, when there are feelings and emotions and thoughts which seem to contradict those paramis and how to get the best of me out when they're all of this, right? Okay. So. Now what the Buddha is saying here, I'm going to take you to this sutta, all right, is saying that you can't weigh in on the, the sense of anger or disgust or division or separation or isolation or whatever you call the opposite of love, fear, whatever. You can't weigh in on that as, as to get to love. All right? So you, got, you can't say, oh, I wish this would go away and where is love now? Because that'll just keep you, you can feel the struggle in that, can't you? Now listen very carefully. When you're struggling, you're not ending suffering. You can't struggle your way to, to end suffering. All right? So that's why this sutta is so important because he's showing us the way to end suffering is not by struggling, but by being able to hold everything just as it is. Oh, I'm feeling hatred now. Oh, now I'm feeling warm-hearted. Now that, I'll show you, okay, that which acknowledges hatred, that which acknowledges warm-heartedness, that which acknowledges disgust is not itself disgusted. It's awareness. It sees 
That's why I can say I'm disgusted is because it sees disgust. But it itself, that which sees disgust, is not disgusted. If you can get that point, you would be so far ahead in terms of what you need to do. So now, okay, so I'm not going, if I want love, what does love mean? I've got to look and see what love means to me. Does love mean that I weigh in on everything? That doesn't feel like love. That feels like isolation and struggle. That's not love. What if I didn't, he's pointing to love. What if I didn't weigh in on everything and just let everything be as, it's, as it is? That seems to be the essence of love to me. So now I'm going to give myself over to the essence of love by letting everything be just as it is. See how we came all the way around? Now I've got my direction straight. I've got a beautiful tool and technique and practice for myself on an ongoing basis to get to that. And I've established a continuum that takes me out of suffering. Okay? Now, most of us can't go from A to Z in one... So we think, oh, how come I'm so, oh, so unlovable? Why is there so much of this difficulty in me? Why am I so self-full of self-hate? And then we go, to, okay, I'm going to practice metta, and I'm going to do all... So we do a lot of this rebalancing until we get to the point where we say, wow, you know, I'm not so bad after all. Now I can hold things. So if you feel so bad after all, you probably need to rebalance some of the states of mind in there so that you have a little more metta on an ongoing basis, which allows you then to reconsider and reevaluate yourself as not so bad after all. And now you can then hold the states of mind which seem so bad after all. Huh? Okay. Wow. All right, that's it for the... <laughs> that was fun. That was fun for me. I hope it was fun for you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.